0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello, and welcome back. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery. Uh, I should mention the name of the show. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. That's the thing that I'm welcoming you back to. And with me in the studio this week is Margot Donahue, the co-host, co-creator, editor, and producer of several podcasts, including Book vs. Movie, Dorking Out, and What a Creep. She recently published her first book called Filmed in Brooklyn, which is the result of over two years of writing, research, and photographing over 250 films that take place and/or are shot in Brooklyn. Margot, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I
0: am so excited for you to be here. I'm so excited to talk about movies. I just want you to know that I live three blocks away from the bakery that they use for the Camareri Bakery in Moonstruck, and that's very important to me.
1: Oh, my goodness. My friend Nixon shot the photo in my book of that place. So I know it very well. Yes.
0: Oh, that's very exciting. Okay, we're going (laughs) to get to that later. I was also very excited the other day. I had a friend who said, hey, are there any bakeries in your neighborhood that sell cannoli? Because I'm going to be out there later. And it was fully like uh, the, the Gavin episode of 30 Rock, where I was just like pulling out all my fingers and being like, this intersection, that intersection. Also, don't <laughs> overthink it. I love it. Yeah. So Italian desserts are something that I think about a lot. But before we can get to that, we should help some lost souls uh, work through their trials and tribulations so that we can earn uh, peace and reflection. That sounds about
1: right. Does that sound good to you? Sounds great. Let's do it. Beautiful. Okay. So
0: uh, as you and I have already discussed, our first question is long, a lot of backstory, little complicated. So I'm going to go ahead and read it and I will do my best to sort of shepherd us through it so that we have a clear sense of what's going on by the time we reach the end. The subject is lost for words. My younger sister broke up with her high school boyfriend about three years ago. It was a very turbulent relationship with enough manipulation to last a lifetime. My sister and I were close at the time and she often came to me for advice. I was happy to help because I'd experienced a painful relationship when I was younger and didn't want her to make the same mistakes I had. When they finally broke up in 2019, they stayed in daily contact as friends, although I thought they should stop talking so they could both move on. My sister kept asking my advice whenever her ex posted photos of himself with other girls online. I tried to tell her that she'd have to learn to be okay with it if she wanted to be friends, but she'd fight with him over text, demand that he show her some respect, and not post the photos where she could see them. After numerous fights, she came to me crying that he had blocked her. I didn't know what to say. I'd already advised her numerous times. Last year, my sister's ex decided to unblock her, and they continued to talk. It wasn't long until the cycle started all over again. They got into another fight. My sister made some very insensitive comments and he rightly decided to block her, but it didn't end there. Recently, my sister discovered that he no longer had her phone number blocked and in the spur of the moment texted him, fuck you. He told her that he was in a committed relationship and had no interest in talking to her anymore. She continued to argue with him, saying things like, you said you would take a bullet for me three years ago. Did that mean nothing to you? And how could you just go out and get another girlfriend when you told me you weren't interested in dating? He blocked her again. She came to me for advice, but I didn't know what to say other than you need to delete his number. She told me she had his number memorized. She then got upset and berated me with insults when she noticed I didn't agree with her position. The relationship ended three years ago, but I'm still getting weekly calls from my sister crying for advice. At this point, I don't know what to say. Her attachment to him doesn't make sense to me. And if anything, it's starting to sound like harassment. It's also affecting our relationship. I don't feel like she respects my time, effort, or feelings. I've tried to pull away from her for my own peace of mind, but she has started to call me asking why we are no longer close like we once were. I don't know what to do. I just want my sister back. Yikes. Yeah, you know, I'm quite, I really feel for this letter writer. I wonder, you know, when the letter writer says towards the end, this sounds like harassment to me, that felt like, yeah, I think we're in that territory. Did this strike you as like the most important thing here is the sister in question seems like she might have some mental illness that she's not aware of? Did it seem more important to try to like rope in other people in her life who might be able to help her? Did it feel like, no, this is like the uh, extreme test limit, but still understandable early 20s drama? Where do you feel on this one?
1: I mean, it feels very 20s to me, and I'm beyond my 20s now. And so a lot of this feels familiar. I mean, not to this level. She is stalking this guy. I mean, there there is a problem here. I mean, this is not okay. He told her no. If the roles were reversed, she would call the cops, and we would all be like, yeah, you need to do that. There's a problem, and he needs to, I think he does need to rope some other people into it. It's very hard to you know, figure out boundaries, and romantic relationships are challenging, especially when they start to change to friendships. And he, they, you know, when you're friends with somebody, they and the romance is decided to be over. They're allowed to go on and see other people. It's the risk you take when you go into romance. You might get hurt. You usually will get hurt until you find someone you jibe with. That's the, That's the way it goes. And it sounds also, and I've been in this situation where you're with someone and it's this circular argument over and over and over again. You know, they say they want your advice, but they don't listen.
0: Right. I really felt that here too, especially with like the sister has already heard from the letter writer at least once, often in many cases, multiple times, some Mm -hmm. variation of you need to stop doing this. It's actually not unreasonable for him to move on so long after you guys broke up and She it doesn't seem like is capable of retaining that information. And there's always a justification for whatever it is that she wants to do. So if it's, I want to text him, fuck you in the middle of the day, and somebody else tells me you should block his number, my response to that is, well, I have it memorized, so that's not possible. Or what I'm feeling in the moment right now is his fault. And so that was part of why I think I wanted to encourage the letter writer. I don't know if your parents or potentially other siblings are at all in the picture, or if you have any mutual friends, but not that I think like the group intervention is always going to be the easiest way forward, but roping in other people and sharing your concerns with them, this is worrying. You've tried to have a conversation with her about this many times.
1: Yeah, I mean, it might help to have other people. It might be better to go to a different environment than you normally do, go for Mm -hmm. a walk someplace different, uh, just do a different activity and try to bring it up. I mean, I would be worried, you know, at some point this person could file harassment charges against her. And that's going to really be against her record or or whatever for the, she needs to really kind of take some stock of her life. This person is telling her, no, (laughs) you need to respect the no when people tell you no.
0: Yeah, man. And just like, I I think that's really good advice about trying to switch up the means of communication. It wasn't super clear to me whether or not this letter writer lived close by to their sister, but, anything, even if it was like switching from a phone call to a Zoom call where you can see her face or trying to get together in person, yeah, anything where you can more easily read each other's body language and and it's a little more difficult to hang up on someone would be useful. But yeah, I would really encourage you share your concerns with anybody else that you might know who has like a relationship with both of you and ask for their help and thinking about like, how do I talk to her about this? And again, you know, go in with relatively low expectations. I don't think a first conversation where you say, I'm really worried about this is going to go great given how she's reacted in the past, but I do still think you have to do it.
1: Yeah. And, and yeah, she might get angry. So yeah, I, I, that's why I say try a new location because you might get, you know, she might behave a little bit differently. But yeah, it's because it's, it's the answer is no. I mean, that's what she has to hear. And she needs to find new people to be with and, and new adventures to go on. She's very stuck in this. Like she said, you you would said you would take a bullet for me three years ago. Yeah, three years ago. It's, yeah, no. We're like high school. Before the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, the world's changed, you know. And you say things like that. It's also one of those things where, like, again,
0: I don't want to like overreact here, but given the other escalations, it's like, oh, that's like kind of kind of a threat, huh? Yeah, like
1: you just it brought could up be taken that language. way. That's, it could be I, taken I that way. That.
0: yeah, I'm mean, good for her. Like, it doesn't sound like your sister is doing well. Like, I think this is damaged. Like, obviously, my first goal is finding a way to make sure she stops contacting her ex. But like, I also want her to be better like to not be weeping every week and calling you all the time and and so distressed. So it's hard enough when you want to say to someone, you need to stop doing something that you've been doing wrong. And then also, I think you need like professional mental health treatment because people in that moment will be likely to take that as a criticism or like there's something hideously wrong and unfixable about you.
1: Right. It sounds like a judgment. People get angry. People get defensive um, therapy doesn't happen overnight. Therapy isn't cheap. You don't jibe sometimes with the first time you meet with a therapist. Sometimes it takes a little while. I mean, all these things and it's family and there's a certain expectation with family and wow, that's a whole other conversation of like how much you're expected to take from a family member. You know, some people think you should put up with everything because they're family. And some people have the idea, well, it's just like any other relationship. If it's damaging, you have to put up more boundaries. It's, it's a tough question. You're in a very tough position. He sounds like he loves her very much and he really wants what's best for her. But he also has to take care of himself. And part of that is, you know, being honest with her.
0: Yeah. So, you know, if there's anyone else you can rope into this conversation, do. Um, if there's not and you have to go it alone, Uh, I would encourage you, letter writer, to just take a couple of notes, really, that you can, I think, get out of here, one of which is, I've seen you really distressed about this for years now. Um, It doesn't seem to be getting better. I'm really concerned that you're harassing him, I think, needs to be at the top of the list, and I'm also concerned about you. You need to stop getting in touch with him, and you need to get help, and I would do anything to help you find help, but I can no longer have these conversations about how to change him because that's not going to happen. And if you call me and you ask me why we're not as close as we used to be, that's why, because you're not able to have other conversations. And I would like very much to have other conversations with you. And then again, be prepared. If she like really blows up, you can just say, I love you. I'm not going to fight about this. Let's talk again some other time. Maybe like, Have your own plans to go for a walk by yourself afterwards or like check in with another friend. Maybe put your phone on do not disturb for a while because it's also possible she'll blow up your phone with a lot of fuck yous that are just for you. I hope she doesn't, but she might.
1: Yeah, I understand that that
0: could happen. Yeah, and then, man, if that doesn't go well, I would really encourage you to maybe seek out a therapist of your own, a support group of your own, and just really hold that line of if you want to get help and be specific about like I think the help you need is like mental health professionals who will help you not harass your ex. Like not just general, go see a therapist, say whatever you want, but specifically, you need help in not harassing your ex-boyfriend because that's the behavior that needs to change immediately. And if she's willing to pursue that, you know, you can talk. And if not, I I think for a while at least, you need to gently answer those phone calls with, I love you, I cannot have this conversation with you again. Call me when you're ready to talk about something else.
1: She's stuck. Yeah. She's stuck in her thinking. That's the problem. The boyfriend messed up her plans in her head of what was supposed to happen, right? He broke up with her. That wasn't supposed to happen. Well, and, she broke up with him, actually. Or she broke up with him, but they, but they broke up. And then, yeah. like, they were supposed to be friends, but he was never supposed to have other girlfriends. Or if he did, he wasn't supposed to be rude and post pictures online, which is an absurd ask. Or even have
0: ask. friends who were women.
1: Right. That's an absurd ask. He's going to live his life, so he she needs to understand that that's not it's it's not reasonable, you know. Yeah. And she's got to she's got to be she, and she's she's stopping herself from happiness. Yeah, that's the big thing.
0: It's hard because it's like this could fall under a lot of different umbrellas of like yeah. potentially diagnosable experiences, potentially just like really shitty behavior and a refusal to grow up. I don't want to make any claims here of like, oh, this is definitely something that needs to get diagnosed or no mental health issues here at all, just a jerk on the field. But it is difficult to try to like navigate your way through how much of this is potential mental illness, how much of this isn't, to what extent are you capable of hearing reality right now? And what do I do if you don't agree with my assessment? And I think that's, again, the toughest thing here is like letter writer Think the odds that she's going to receive this conversation and immediately say, Wow, you're right. I've really crossed lines that I didn't think I would. I'm going to like find a therapist tomorrow. That's pretty low. Be great if that was a reaction. But my guess is it's going to take more time than that. And it is harder to have a conversation that you think is likely to go badly with, with someone you care about, but things aren't going well now. You're not really able to have conversations now. So at least on that end, you don't have a lot to lose.
1: It can only go up from there. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, I mean, at least on your end, like it's potential that she could spiral further or lash out more, but at least on your end, you would know you were no longer picking up the phone and saying like, you're at least picking up the phone and being clear and you can be clear and loving at the same time. But yeah, really hammer home. This needs to stop. The reason that we're not as close is because this is the only conversation you are willing to have with me. You know, it makes me sad to see you in so much pain. And it also makes me worried to see you lashing out at this guy in ways that are like really inappropriate and unsafe. Mm -hmm. And good luck. Definitely. I would love to hear back from you. uh, If you get the chance, Letter Writer, Um, I hope you're getting good support from other people in your life. I'm really sorry. It's really hard watching somebody you care about just spiral. And this is really, really unhealthy, inappropriate, not okay, not good. And I'm really, really sorry. This one's great. This one's my bread and butter. This one's called Maybe Egg Magnet. I'm a trans man. My boyfriend and I have been dating for about two years. Things are going great and we're moving in together soon. That being said, I've noticed a few things that signal to me that he might be trans. He hasn't cut his hair since the beginning of the pandemic and pushed back a little when I brought it up, even though I don't care whether he cuts it or not. He also doesn't love being called handsome, but he really likes cute and pretty and beautiful. He is obviously all of those things. Of course, this could all be totally irrelevant, but I can't help but see some parallels between his reaction to gender norms and mine before I transitioned, as well as some of my other exes who also later transitioned. He currently lives with his parents, who are conservative Catholics, and don't even know that he's queer, and would probably react poorly to his being trans. I'm wondering if he's even considered his gender or if it's something that he's repressed for safety reasons. I love him and would absolutely support him, whatever he feels. Is there a way to ask if he's thought about his gender, or is this something I should wait for him to tell me about?
1: You oh, go first.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah. Busy. Busy. Certainly. I um. Oftentimes I get letters that are like, "We're about to move in together. Things are going great, but there's this one thing," and I get real nervous, and I and I want to be able to say like, "Oh, I hope you haven't signed anything yet." But this is one of those, not one of those letters. So I feel at least a little relieved that your boyfriend is going to be getting out of this unpleasant conservative environment. And it's unclear to me if his parents know about you or not. If he's not out, my guess is they don't, but maybe they just think he's moving in with a buddy or something, all of which is like fine and to the good. I I really think letter writer, there are like two things to bear in mind here. One is it's never like wrong or rude to ask a partner Hey, I've noticed you've like mentioned a couple of things that like made me wonder if something might be going on in your thoughts about your gender. It would be like a weird thing to ask a stranger or someone you didn't know very well, but you're not like waking him up in the middle of the night and saying explain yourself to me right now. You're, you know, asking an open-ended question, which is not itself like necessarily invasive or weird. If he's just like, "Nope, not at all. I just don't like the word handsome and I like my long hair." You know, the correct responses to leave it at that. But it sounds like I'm not worried, letter writer, that you're going to get super pushy, like simply asking the question in a sort of like open-ended way. And again, ask the question in terms of like, I wonder if you have any thoughts about your gender that might have like changed or shifted over the last couple of years, rather than I think you might be trans. Do you agree? That's the way to approach it. But then there's also, uh, I think this sort of hope, especially like when one's own transition is more in the rearview mirror of like, if I can anticipate familiar signs in other people and tell them what I think it is, then like I can use my, my experience and my hindsight to like save someone else years of being closeted or years of like moving in the wrong direction. And there can be a fantasy of just like management and control in that, which is just like, your experience will be just like mine if you felt thus in such a way about this gender norm and I felt that way about it and we are just like the same, but twinned through a mirror. And if I just tell you do all of the things I did, but backwards and in high heels, you're going to be so happy and I'll have saved you all the trouble I went through. And I think it's usually a good idea to let some of that go just because there's so many different ways to experience similar things, but with different frameworks or different identities that it can be counterproductive to assume, you know, Everything that that into I mean, it's hard. Like I want to be like, yeah, your radar is probably pretty good, but don't assume that means you know the exact outline of what somebody else is going to go through, or or that you can say, I know what the future holds for you. If that makes sense,
1: yeah, yeah. And it sounds like they want to be the hero for that person, and and if you're ready to to say something. Ta-da! And I can mm-hmm. tell you exactly what to do and what to expect. And I'm the most understanding person. And I, I mean, this person's very lucky to have you mm-hmm. either way. I mean, you, you know, you sound very understanding and empathetic and amazing. But yeah, you you've got you've got to let him do things the way he needs to do them and find his own way. I mean, just because he doesn't like the word handsome and prefers cute, I mean, but he also likes pretty and beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's
0: one of those things where, like,
1: maybe there's a lot of adjectives. Yeah, yeah. Like, I could absolutely
0: see somebody in that position. You know, maybe your boyfriend in three years will be like, wow, I I really appreciate that somebody like mentioned that to me. That's absolutely what was going on. Maybe it's going to be one of a bunch of different other things, but totally fine as like your boyfriend's partner to ask, have you thought about your gender? As long as, you know, it's a genuinely open ended question. And you're prepared for a number of different answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the even if the answer that you get is like, nope, we're good. And you find yourself privately a little suspicious. Like, I, at that point, I don't know that that's something that it would be useful to share with him. Like, what would he be able to do with that information? How right. welcome would that be? I just don't know. Like, yeah. So, like, again, just like. I get that sense of, oh, I have a bunch of exes who are kind of similar, but it's it's a little bit like rolling dice. And I don't know a lot about dice, but my understanding is like every time you roll the dice, it doesn't matter what dice you rolled before. Like each new probability is, is, stands on its own.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: just like, it's, it's not as simple as just like, oh, you do this thing that three of my exes did who later transitioned. Therefore, like you're going to do, gonna do gonna the transition. same thing.
1: Right people are unique. People are different. People, yeah, you can't, and yeah. just, you know,
0: some people choose to do it and some people don't. Like, I think it, it sometimes feels like if you have, you know, the following attributes, you will inevitably transition. And that is the best thing that could happen to you. And if you only have three out of five, you know, you fail to meet the criteria and then you're just a totally different kind of person. And I think that there's more of a sort of like nebulous middle where some people might share certain traits and one person might decide to transition with those and another person might not. And that's just partly because some people choose not to transition. And you you might reflect privately that you think it would be better for them if they did, but uh, really the choice has to be theirs. Right. So it's not just like, oh, I've solved the riddle of you. Here are your three golden clues. You can redeem these tokens at the nearest transition booth.
1: I also think you gain your dignity by finding things on your own. Yeah. And that's part of the journey too. And that he needs to kind of go on his own journey at his own pace. You know, and I think leaving a conservative home is a big step for him.
0: Yeah. Well, and sometimes too, especially if you live in a conservative household, like some people might think I have a really clear idea of the life I envision for myself outside of this environment. And once I get out of here, it's just a matter of execution. And other people might genuinely feel like I didn't even know all of the things that I wanted until I got out from under it because I wouldn't even allow myself to imagine some things.
1: Right. I felt the same way. Like I grew up in a conservative environment. It wasn't until I moved to New York. I really didn't know what to expect just being an adult on my own. I was just so raised to just be, you know, be dutiful and, you know, and it's like, I didn't know like, oh, you don't have to get married and have kids and do all those things. You could just do your own thing. I didn't know. Yeah. So I think, you know,
0: not to ask something like, hey, do you want to transition, but your conservative parents have made you feel like you have to repress for your own safety? Because that's like, it's kind of a leading question. But if you ask the sort of general question, do you ever have thoughts about your gender and you get a sort of like meandering answer, you can say something like, yeah, does it feel like living around your parents has affected the way that you think about it? Do you think that that might change at all in the future once you're not living with them? you know that's again like totally reasonable appropriate you know kind non-intrusive question to ask and you know your boyfriend might have a lot of thoughts on the subject might be sort of like oh I haven't thought about it that much but like we'll see yeah, you sound supportive you sound open-minded I'm not worried letter a writer that you're gonna like sit your boyfriend down and say like I have chosen a new name for you and here is your path <laughs> um, so you know best of luck and uh, you know Good luck uh, whisking him away from his parents and being like, surprise, I'm a fella. (laughs) Well, I think that's all I've got for that one. So, Margot, if you're amenable, uh, can we talk about how your friend photographed one of my favorite bakeries?
1: He just was walking by there one day. He knew that I was taking pictures of different locations of Brooklyn and he just like texted me out of nowhere and said, "Did you know this was in uh where is it?" It's in um It's like right on the line between Carroll Gardens and Cobble Hill. Exactly. And he just he just grabbed it on his phone and and sent it to me, but I've been taking pictures for over 2 years you know the moonstruck house and the coney island where the warriors fought and all those different locations around brooklyn for, and now that i have i have my book about it and it's yeah, just thank been so you for exciting leading
0: us to the book because i actually realized i should probably uh, <laughs> ask you to first tell us a little bit about like how this project came to be before i just like insert my thing into it
1: Well, I've been working on pop culture podcasts for a few years, and I pitched this publisher to actually, I wanted to write a book about my neighborhood, Park Slope, Brooklyn. And they came back to me and said, we've actually been doing a bunch of books about movie locations in different cities and regions. And they said, would you be interested in writing about film in Brooklyn? I'm like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I signed just before COVID hit. So I was, you know, everyone was stuck home for a long time. And I just and at first, I envisioned it just writing about a few different movies and locations, but I just kept watching more and more movies, and it could, I just couldn't seem to stop. And then on the weekends, I would go out and just search for different locations. And so it turned out to be a little over 250 locations. Oh, wow, who knew there'd be so many? and And then it just sort of came to be. And as my publicist said, it's rather exhaustive. I said, Yeah, I hope that's a compliment. <laughs> I, I had a lot of time on my hands. I had a lot of time on my hands. And I'm kind of the person that, you know, goes into different rabbit holes. When I look something up, I want to know everything I can about it. So it's everything from the Brooklyn Bridge down to Coney Island, but through, you know, it's moonstruck. And it's all these different films that I just I've adored throughout my life. Spike Lee films. Marvel films. It's funny, you know, funnily enough, um, all the Spider-Man movies have been filmed. I I say Spider-Man, by the way. I know it's Spider-Man. that they're, they're all filmed in Brooklyn, but not Captain America, who's a kid from Brooklyn. Really? Yeah. Funnily I, enough.
0: I was wondering, too, like, is most of the book, um, like, focusing on, like, the early Vitagraph studio days? Yes, you know about
1: Vitagraph. It, I, I I like old movies a lot. Me, too. Me, too. That's from Midwood. Yeah, they it started in Midwood, and In 1897, that's the first movie studio in America, one of the first movie studios, and then they were bought out in the mid-20s, and then it goes right up to today.
0: Yeah, I was curious then, was there kind of like a dead zone during like the 30s and 40s when everybody was decamping for, uh, sorry, earlier than that, when everyone was decamping for the West Coast, or was it like no yes. filming kept continuing in Brooklyn the whole time?
1: There's been filming the whole time. I mean, think became more of a, of a TV film studio out there. The Cosby Show was actually filmed out in that studio for a while. Um, and then it became a Jewish girls' school, which is ironic because the people that made that film studio were anti-Semitic, rather mm. anti-Semitic. But um, anyway, there's always been filming going on. There just wasn't a big film studio anymore. But I mean, there's a, there's a location in Greenpoint where a lot of movies are made. But like Prospect Park has always been very popular. There's all kinds of locations. Williamsburg is hugely popular. Excuse me, uh, Dumbo, uh, The Bridge. So many movies are filmed there.
0: Oh, that's so remarkable. Was there anything that you uncovered uh, that was either unknown to you or possibly unknown for for some time um, while you were searching out locations? Anything that especially surprised you?
1: There's a movie that I found that I super love, and it's called The Hot Rock, and it stars Robert Redford. It's the early seventies, and it was, it's about a jewel heist, and it's the jewel is in Brooklyn Museum. And it's before the Brooklyn Museum had the stairs that are in front of it. Have you been to the museum? They have all those Mm -hmm. steps in front of it. They didn't have steps in front of it in the seventies, and they basically parked a car right in front of the museum and just blew it up. It's hysterical. And they just ran in and grabbed a jewel and got out. And then it's all Brooklyn and Manhattan in 1972 as they're building the World Trade Center. So you can see it in the background. It's fascinating. And it's the only reason I bought a portable DVD player because this film is only available on DVD. But I found a couple of movies like that that are like, who knew that this was that this thing existed? But just because I'm working on this book.
0: That's remarkable. I think one of the uh, first movies that I ever got to see that was like visibly set in Brooklyn in a way that was uh, like obvious even to me at the time was when I got to see Carl Lemley's like Lonesome, which was mm-hmm. one of those early part talkies that has like a great like 20 minute segment that's partially colorized in Coney Island. I don't know oh, if that wow. was something that you got to um, encounter at all, but it's it's a remarkable movie that was like mostly filmed silent, and then they like added three scenes at the beach where like the guy is suddenly like, "Say, look at the water out there," um, <laughs> and then right back to silent. But it's twenty three skidoo, <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: No, the Little Fugitive. Are you familiar with that movie? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's a black and white movie. It's hugely influential in the movie 53? business. Three. Yeah, somewhere the mid-50s, they strapped the cameras on their chests and just walked around Coney Island just filming people and got their real reactions. And it was a little boy. It's the stories of a little boy who thinks he kills his brother in a prank and escapes to Coney Island because he thinks the police are chasing him. And it's these real reactions of people to him. And it's remarkable. It's beautiful to look at. But it was a new way of filmmaking. And That's it, incredible. Yeah, there's all kinds of like films like that that are just, yeah. And Coney Island's just a, it's, it's, I say this to people like Coney Island's incredible because it's like a place where I feel incredibly relaxed, mm. but yet on my, on edge, because anything can happen at any moment there too.
0: You know. I've still, I've still crazily enough. I've still never been it is oh, you gotta go. featured in so many of my favorite movies. And I think like you, maybe I'm a, a West coast transplant. Yes. Um, and I've always meant to, but, uh, I moved here right before the pandemic. And so I just haven't had the chance oh, to get out there.
1: Just hop on the F train and get out there. It's, it's, it's pretty fun. Runs right past my house. All right. I'm going to put it on my list Okay.
0: of things to do in the very near future. Excellent. Um, well that is fabulous. Thank you so much for telling us a little bit about that. Um, any other like uh slightly under underseen Brooklyn movie that you want to um promote before we move on?
1: I wouldn't say it's underseen, but I just absolutely freaking love it. Uh let me say, no, it is underseen and it's available on Amazon. It's called The Lords of Flatbush. Mm-hmm. I think you would appreciate it. It's got Sylvester Stallone, Perry King, pre fonzie H- Henry Winkler oh, wow. playing a hoodlum. And it's it's Coney Island. And it's also also at Coney Island High School. It's like 1974. Oh, and wow. it has original music and they play these thugs and it's really funny because they don't really hurt anybody. They're just kind of playing greasers. but they're oh, yeah, really... Looking at the poster and he's dressed like the Fonz. Yes. Yeah, it's like yeah. a year or two before he, before he plays the Fonz. And it's actually really funny. Like Sylvester Stallone gets engaged to a girl in his senior year and they have a very funny scene where they get the ring and like she's really noisy and loud and pushes him around and, he, it's it's before he did Rocky, before he becomes mm. a star. It's really great. Wow.
0: Okay. I will also put that on my list. Thank you. This is fabulous.
1: Oh, good. Good. I'm glad to do that. I love doing that.
0: Oh, my gosh. And I'm just reading now like the plot description and it says, Wimpy Mergalo is a loyal yeah. follower in awe of Stanley. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to see that. Wimpy <laughs> Mergalo? Absolutely. They don't name people like they used to. <laughs> Are there any uh, final either like movie or life recommendations that you would like to share with any of our listeners? before we declare them all healed uh, and move on with our lives.
1: I'll say something. Um, let's go back to Moonstruck because it's very healing if you need something to watch to make you feel better. Because I've actually, like the last year, I think I've watched it three times. When I've just been blue or it just, just needed a boost in mood, it's kind of a perfect movie. It just does what it needs to do. It, it's funny. It's romantic. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it, it just... It does everything it needs to do. And I, I totally recommend it if you need I'm it. I'm
0: nodding vigorously,
1: which you can't yes, hear. It just does. It's it's great.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel similarly like every time I watch it, I just feel like an old timey guy saying, "Like what a woman. Like, <laughs> what a film. But like, everything about it just moves together so beautifully. It's just like watching the most beautiful, well-oiled machine. Without any of the sort of like soulless implications that sometimes come from calling something a machine. It's like a machine or an animal just like at the height of its powers.
1: Sometimes people think it's a rom-com. They they kind of lump it with that. And it is a romantic comedy, but it has Nicolas Cage. And it's <laughs> Nicolas cage He's yeah. just, he's so weird and so bizarre in the best possible way. And it has real jokes. It's it's very, very funny. It's and like it's if it's a- Very romantic. It, it,
0: sort of like how like Aaron Sorkin writes rom-coms but the romantic lead is the workplace. Yes. It's like Moonstruck is a romantic comedy in as much as like Italian-Americanness mm-hmm. is a romantic interest. So it's like the idea of having a boisterous but loving Italian-American family. That's the romantic lead of this movie. Uh Cher and Nicolas Cage happen to get together, but it's the Italian-American family ideal uh that's at the heart of the like film's uh at the heart of the film.
1: And the the house was just bought, which was is in Brooklyn Heights. Mm-hmm. Amy Schumer just bought the house. Oh, they're always
0: like, I feel like every two or three years, like Gothamist or somebody will list, like, there's an article that's like, the Moonstruck house is for sale. And then everyone makes the same joke on Twitter, which is like, which 400 other people want to go in on this? Um, such that I never thought that it would ever actually truly be sold. But apparently.
1: Yes, she bought it. It should have been me. Yeah, Same.
0: It should have been me. I don't think she deserves it. And I <laughs> I will find a way. Uh, I will turn this into a... Um, what's that movie? It's like set in San Francisco where somebody ruins everyone's life. Pac- Pacific Heights, the
1: movie. Yeah, Michael Keaton. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I'm Melanie the, Griffith. Michael
0: Keaton. Uh, and I'm going to Pacific <laughs> Heights, the Moonstruck House.
1: It has a, a really great it idea has a for garage. a garage. Yeah. It, like, like,
0: it's a really nice house. It's a really nice house. And, you know, it's like a a fun goofy movie. I think uh, I, I think Pacific Heights is due for a re-release set in the real life moonstruck house.
1: My friend Sonia and I, on Dorking out, we dork out about movies. We covered Pacific Heights recently, like it's oh, like six months ago. How does it hold up? it's it's ridiculous, but it's great. <laughs> and especially if you know San Francisco, if you know Pacific Heights, it's really fun. yeah, yeah. yeah. But I
0: think whenever you get to a description of a movie and someone's like, oh, if you like this neighborhood of this city, you're going to love yes. it. It's like, all
1: right. Well, that's not like,
0: wow, the script will blow you away. <laughs> like the acting's incredible. It's always I, like,
1: I am such a psych- sucker for Michael Keaton, though. Oh, he yeah. He could pretty much do anything and I'll watch yeah. it. Same. Although
0: uh, one of the I don't often walk out of movies. I think the last time I did it was three billboards. Um, but before oh, that,
1: wasn't that terrible? Oh,
0: I hated it so much. Before that, it was the Birdman. And after like yeah, 45 minutes of that goddamn drum, uh, I was just like, you know what? Even for Michael Keaton, I don't think I can do this. But
1: I think in my book, I didn't walk out because I was in my apartment, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think uh, Baby Mama. And I only had like 20 minutes left and I just was, I couldn't do it.
0: Oh, I that just that didn't even have enough to be a trailer.
1: No. No, I don't know how it ends and I don't care. I was so angry at it after a while. It has so many great people in it. I I think it's so
0: tempting. There are some people who I think often hear, I'd watch a movie of just the two of you hanging out and that's like the kiss of death. Because like It
1: is the kiss of
0: death. Every, like one times out of a hundred that actually works and you get like a great hangout movie, but so much more of the time it just feels like you two
1: seem to be having
0: fun. But there's not a movie here.
1: No. Like, the thing with Moonstruck is it's very well written and it's well directed. It's well acted. Like, it's paced a certain way. They're not just hanging out. I don't want a hangout movie.
0: I mean, well, I, and actually, now I was thinking because John Schlesinger, I think, is the director for Pacific Heights. And um, I think Midnight Cowboy is a great hangout movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mostly a movie about hanging out with your friend until he dies on a bus. Spoilers for Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I, I rewatched it a couple years ago, and I was surprised by how much. I mean, not surprised. Like it's a sprawling movie from 1969. Of course, it's going to be mostly hanging out, but it's really just hanging out. Like it's just the most like picturesque nothing of a movie. But it's done exquisitely, and and the writing is phenomenal. And and I think the amount of work that goes into making something seem like a great hangout is in fact immense. Yeah,
1: I just saw a midnight run recently. For the first Ooh. time in a long time, and that's uh, it's on Criterion. It was on Criterion last month, and that house is actually in Brooklyn Heights as well. It's Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro.
0: We're truly living in a Charles Grodin Renaissance.
1: He was the best. <laughs> he was so. And Dave, he's like my favorite. in Dave, he's like oh, the, he's great. He's so great. He's like one of my favorite actors. He's fantastic. He's even like not bad in uh, Heaven Can Wait, which is. I haven't seen Heaven Can Wait in a while, but that's a great one, too. I mean, early 80s was,
0: like, I guess this was late 70s, but, like, late 70s, early 80s. Like, I feel like with Heaven Can Wait and, like, Peggy Sue Got Married, like, the fantasy comedy genre really got, like, uh, a great spin around the block in that, like, six-year period.
1: Yeah, they don't really do those anymore. I would really like to see that. No, I can't. I mean, I guess
0: Stardust was the last fantasy comedy I can think of off the top of my head, but... That was really mostly a, like uh, a romantic movie. And again, that had the sort of like, like imprimatur of Neil Gaiman behind it. So there was like already like a, a name factor. But yeah, no, that classic kind of fantasy comedy that I so associate with the beginning of that decade. I can't really think of many modern examples, although I would welcome uh, anybody's, uh, you know, you know, this is awful. You know, who's like trying to do it the most is Ricky Gervais. He does fantasy comedy, but I hate <laughs> it and it's awful.
1: I used to love him. I used to really enjoy his comedy, but he's really, he's downgraded for me. You know,
0: let it, let it be a reminder to us all that nobody stays on top the whole time uh, and to, to continue to hold ourselves to the highest possible standards lest we fall down that path.
1: Indeed. Yeah, Indeed. so
0: everyone go forth not to get high on your own supply um, and let's live the rest of the day in soul searching and paranoia. <laughs> Margo thank you so much for taking the time to answer some of these questions with us. Uh, I hope you have a fabulous for the rest of the day. You don't have to do any soul searching. You're doing great.
1: Thank you so much. I had such a great time talking to you.
0: And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Anything you can do to diffuse defensiveness is is useful, but that doesn't mean you have to pretend that you feel great about everything. And yeah, this is really hard because, like, on the one hand, I think we all want to feel like we have room in our lives for other people to change. And yet, often when people change, they do it kind of haphazardly, not necessarily with, like, the clearest thinking and sometimes in ways that other people don't want us to and so sometimes what what to one person might feel like new freedom excitement to someone else feels like whoa slow down i hate this
1: yeah yeah especially if somebody's known you for a while and then you start to change a little bit i got cuz i've had that experience too where somebody's just like you're not the person i knew before you're starting to ch-. and it's like well yeah changing i'm getting older i've had new experiences i've been through some things yeah
0: to listen to the rest of that
1: conversation
0: join Slate Plus now at slate dot com forward slash mood.